Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, quite different than yesterday. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, he made history as an Olympic gold medalist in track and field. He's a proud alum of Morehouse College. But now, Edwin Moses shares why he's encouraging kids and families of all ages to get outside and get physical. They don't have a gym class like I used to have to have it in the, in the third, fourth, and fifth grade. Twice a week, indoors, mm-hmm. wear white shorts, white socks, gym shoes. You know, <laughs> do everything from tumbling to volleyball to basketball, dodgeball. Get, have have uh, calisthenics where everyone's measured and we do these calisthenic tests and physical fitness tests. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this members of Atlanta's 5th Congressional District are still without a congressional representative, at least for another two months. Now, that's after yesterday's special election to fill the seat of the late Congressman John Lewis. The election was to decide who will fill the remainder of Lewis's term. None of the seven candidates on the special election ballot received more than 50 percent of the vote, which is required to win by Georgia law. So the top two will now head to a December runoff. You probably know these names. Former Atlanta City Councilman Kwanzaa Hall and former president of Morehouse College and current faculty member at Emory University, Dr. Robert Franklin. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp's executive order on the coronavirus restrictions is set to expire tonight. This week, the White House Coronavirus Task Force moved the state of the, quote, red zone. But the group is also recommending Georgia limit the gathering of folks to 20 people rather than the current 50-person maximum. Uh, Governor Kemp says he doesn't think that'll work. To go backwards on that, I just don't think people are going to comply with it. Uh, I would much rather be focused on them making that call themselves that, you know, don't go to large gatherings. Try to limit the size of things. If you're in that environment, you know, wear your mask. Now, the governor is asking Georgians to stay, quote, vigilant in stopping the spread of the virus because, quote, when people get complacent is when you start seeing spikes. And speaking of numbers, here's the latest from the Georgia Department of Public Health, which indicates 34 COVID-19 deaths were reported within the last 24 hours. That brings the total to 6,994 deaths since March. So far, there's been 316,306 COVID-19 cases, all confirmed since March. 28,339 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,225 were ICU admissions. And this is always information coming from the State Department of Public Health. And now on to the other big news. The first of what is supposed to be three presidential debates took place last night, hosted by the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve University. Of course, incumbent President Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden, took to the stage. And what was expected to happen? Well, it happened. Matter of fact, even the people who testified under oath so let under me ask oath. you this. Andrew, no, no, oath. go ahead, mister. Andrew, I'm listening Andrew, to you. People under, you got three he, and a half million testified, dollars from Moscow. Te- he testified under oath in his administration, said, I did my job and I did it very well. Oh, I really? did it I'd honorably. Like to know who they are. Every, well, I'll give you the list I'll of the people them. who testified. No, no, go ahead, sir. Sure, you, they, you've already fired most of them because they did some a good job. Some people don't well, do a good here's job. The, with you, you got well, the fi- wait a minute. You get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me. This, hey, hey this let me person. just say to you. No, no, no. I'm no. Mr. President. Three and a half Mr. million, President. It was projected 100 million would watch. We do know Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks did. And he joins me now. Welcome to the program, Fred. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be back. Let's begin here. Just your overall assessment of the debate in terms of, I don't know, Fred. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> What's your overall assessment, Fred? <laughs> Well, I think the first question is, was that a debate or was that really a national disgrace? I mean, to see two people who we have elected at some point in time over the last 12 years stand up there and have such utter disrespect and disregard for the process 
and for really the American people and communicating with us and giving us competing visions was disappointing. It was extremely disappointing. Outside their base, did either President Trump or Mr. Biden make any connection with an undecided voter? I don't think that President Trump was trying to do that. Uh, He was playing base politics and his refusal to repudiate racism, white supremacy, his refusal to acknowledge mistakes around coronavirus or COVID-19. So that wasn't the game that President Trump was trying to play last night. I think that Vice President Biden attempted to play that, but as the debate wore on, and by wore on, I mean midway through the first question, I think he realized that that just wasn't going to be possible. And so he was trying to hold on and, and make points winning where he could. But uh, last night was not, uh, was, not about, was not persuasive, I don't think, for an, uh, an undecided voter. Let me ask you this, because you started our conversation talking about if they're not going to respect the process. So given that, Fred, is it really necessary to even continue with the two other scheduled debates, whether you're the GOP or the Democrats? Because if this is going to be the playbook, so to speak, if this is going to be the performance, then why even continue? I think that's a great question, uh, to be honest with you, because... Donald Trump is what Donald Trump is. And I think that looking at his debate performances in 2016 and how he handled um, Secretary Clinton and looking at how he handled Vice President Biden yesterday, there's no reason to indicate or there's no reason to believe that he would do anything different in two subsequent debates. And if what we saw last night is what we're going to get, then I think both campaigns would just be better served out there campaigning rather than taking the time out to uh, to, to go on TV like that. So, yeah, no, I. You know, maybe the presidential commission requires them to have have three debates. But if this is if that was what we are going to have in the future, there's really no reason to do it. I want you to assess what folks like me could be doing in terms of journalists and the media. You know, could networks say, look, to both candidates, if this is how you are going to behave, we're not going to air this. Or you all can get your own Zoom account and square off that way. You know, what role do you think the news media could play in this and in ensuring that the debates, yeah, we expect some back and forth, some fiery dialogue, maybe even some insults. Okay, maybe not, depending on who you ask, but that's a disservice to the viewers, to everyone. So what role could, do you think the news media, do you think that we should say, hey, look, if this is how y'all are going to behave, then we're not going to do this. Well, we affectionately refer to the media as the fourth leg of government, and our governmental system here is designed to have checks and balances. And so I think the lead role that the media can play in this is serving as a check and balance to what's happening or, or the uh, how this campaign has devolved. And so by that, I mean, number one, the media can serve as a fact checker. Look, facts are facts. It's not what we want it to be. Um, it's not owning your own truth. There are some absolutes. Well, this we do that. I mean, I mean all the fact checkers, they were busy last night. So that, They were busy, yeah. but we tend to fall into this space of, well, there's good on both sides, there's bad on both, on, on both sides. And I think just being very clear and fact checking. So, and it's not just a, simply a post, but I think it's also in the coverage that that's provided pre and post events to to use your airtime, use your space, use your, your platform to bring that point home. Because this idea of truth as relative um, is really is really taken hold and seeped into politics. And just the reality is there are some absolutes. Uh, this did happen or that did not happen. And, you know, one side or the other is going to yell fake news or this is not true or that's not true. But there's got to be a place where the American people can go. So I think, number one, the role of the media can be a fact checker. Number two, I think that like we're seeing in social media with uh, Twitter and Facebook, that if the media can say, hey, look, uh, we're not going to broadcast things that we know are not true. So we're fact checking and things are not true. We're not going to broadcast it. We're not going to give you the airtime. Use your own individual platform. Now, that means that we can't necessarily go live. We might have to go do a tape delayed kind of thing. But I think that if candidates understand that that uh, their lives are not going to get space, then that changes the game a little bit there. And then I think number three, um, in addition to fact checking and limiting the, the air space given to, to untruths, I think that the media has to stop repeating um, assumptions and actually like you do you go into and you talk to the community you get rooted in the community and you have everyday voices out there and that's something that's lost we have people who are up on tv and and on social media who are influencers and we take our cues from there but i think if you're talking to everyday people uh like you are your people would find that 
that um, that there's a little bit of a difference between what you see on TV and what people are feeling in their hearts and what they're saying around the dining room table. So I think that's the third thing, giving airspace to, to everyday people. Moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News made it clear of the topics ahead of the debate, although it was almost impossible. But did it appear President Trump or Mr. Biden were prepared to talk about the Supreme Court and, and COVID-19 and race and violence and the integrity of the election? I think maybe the, the integrity of the election spiraled off into, you know, mail-in ballots. But <laughs> could you make out anybody's policy last night and, and where they stand? Well, when you go into a debate, and I've done this a lot with my candidates, you, you say, hey, here, what are the three things we want to accomplish today? Now, that might be articulating a policy position, or that might be just making sure the other person doesn't get any airspace, or that could just be blurring the lines. And so I think President Trump was very effective in achieving his objectives last night, which was take the conversation away from COVID-19, right? Move it away from anything negative and not give Joe Biden airspace and make him look weak. I think that it was not as clear what the vice president's objectives were last night, uh, other than appearing to be presidential in the way that he and his team see that presidential should be, should be, or what that means. And so beyond that, I think Vice President Biden did not execute on whatever his objectives were last night. And so that was, that was a lost opportunity for him. And so the other news today out of what happened during the debate last night was President Trump's hesitation or refusal to talk about the white supremacist groups in the nation. What did you make of that whole exchange? You know, that was really disappointing. I mean, again, President Trump is who he is, and he has refused at any point in time, including in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville in 2017, to acknowledge it. So I guess we shouldn't have expected him to do anything different last night, but it was still very different, and it was glaring. It was glaring, so I was glad that the moderator pressed on that. Chris Wallace did not let up on that. And it forced President Trump into the corner. We ended up giving a shout out to the Proud Boys, a group I was not familiar with, but I had to look it up last night and this morning, um, and to give them a shout out and saying what stand by and stand down, um, you know, uh, which a lot of people have commented that that's, that's very much coded language. So it was, it was, it was disappointing. Um, but I guess we shouldn't have been surprised because Donald Trump doesn't change who he is for the environment, right? I asked you if either of them made any headway with an undecided voter. Let me ask you this. For those who were supporters of President Trump or Mr. Biden, do you think they lost some support based on their performance last night? You know, I'm not sure if it's possible for Donald Trump to lose support. Uh, it seems like whatever he does, he uh, his, his base stays with him. I think uh, because of that, the vice president had a much higher higher bar uh, with within Democratic circles um, and with undecideds. And so on the vice president's performance alone, I don't think that he did that. However, for undecided or left-leaning or people who, who believe in, in decorum and things of that nature, I think that President Trump went too far. And so in so doing, he actually ended up helping Joe Biden last night. Uh, so he secured his base, but he also made people go, ah, that's not what I want in a president. That is not presidential. Now, I don't know how many voters, though, that happens to be, if it's a half percent, a percentage point where they are, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, that there are a fair number of Americans who were really turned off by what they saw from the president last night. Let's move to the vice president. As a matter of fact, Vice President Mike Pence will be in the Atlanta area today. He is scheduled to arrive in Cobb County. He's going to deliver remarks at a Faith and Freedom Coalition policy conference that is later today. The debate between Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris is scheduled for Wednesday, October 7th in Salt Lake City. What do you foresee there? I think we'll see a much more graceful performance between both candidates. They seem to are already they seem to display much more respect for one another than the vice president and the president do, um, or the president towards the vice president, former vice president. Um, I also expect to see more of a discussion on policy, and I think is the mantle is going to be placed upon them to articulate the vision for what the future is going to be. So in other words, for anyone who was expecting or hoping to see differences between policy differences between Democrats and Republicans last night, you didn't get that. But I think we have a unique opportunity to get that between the two of them next week at the vice presidential debate. So now we have Vice President Mike Pence, who's in Georgia this week. We all know President Donald Trump was here not too long ago. Many folks in your field feel like this is because Georgia has now truly become a battleground state. How do you see it? 
Well, I think so. I mean, you look at Stacey Abrams' performance in 2018, where there was, what, about a, only a 52,000-vote gap between she and Brian Kemp, and look at everything that's happened since then, whether it's COVID, a tanking economy, uh, just uh, a continued demographic shifts, things of that nature. You have to believe that Georgia is a swing state. Add to that two competitive Senate seats, um, then you this, it makes every sense every bit of sense in the world for for people to spend time here i'm hopeful that uh, the vice president and, and senator Hom and senator harris will also start spending time here i think that anyone who who is really engaged in prognostication will acknowledge that if donald trump does not win georgia if those two senate seats fall it is really difficult for him to win the presidency and it is really difficult for the for the uh, republicans to hold on to the senate and so absolutely georgia's a battleground because you have three major races taking place in the state at the same time on the same day and we should <laughs> note georgia has not gone to a democratic president candidate since bill clinton i think back in what 92 maybe something like that 92 or 96 i can't remember which one yeah we're getting old Fred. we can't remember our dates man <laughs> for sure <laughs> For sure. Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. I guess stay tuned, huh? Stay tuned. We have a very uh, interesting, what, 30, 35, 34 days left. Yes. So, although, since President Trump refused to concede the results of the election, this could go on a lot longer. You mean we'll still be talking about this, I don't know, on St. Patrick's Day in 2021? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I mean, and virtually, because COVID will still be here. So, yeah. We'll still... <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Fred. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Russ, for having me. I enjoy it. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. For college students and professors and everyone else throughout the nation in higher learning, including right here in Georgia, it's been a year of constant changes. Now, since all of this started, I've spoken with so many Atlanta area college and university presidents from Spelman to Agnes Scott to Georgia State. And yes, we talked about how the campuses have adapted during the pandemic. I thought I had seen everything. But this crisis is like nothing I have ever seen before. And I think it's challenging everybody in uh, ways that none of us have ever experienced. Every college and university in the country is feeling the impact of COVID-19. Agnes Scott is no different. Clearly there is an adjustment with respect to the finances. But I have to say where I'm most concerned are the finances of our students. And yeah, it's, it'd be safe to say, you know, I'm working harder than I've ever worked in my life. It's from the time I get up to the time I go to sleep and if I wake up in the middle of the night. The only thing that is certain, and I've said this many times, the only thing that is certain about the future is that it's not certain. Hmm. That is the question and the assessment a lot of folks have said. Now, Georgia Tech recently announced changes to its spring 2021 academic calendar, including a delayed start date. And get this, no no spring break, so to speak, not a week-long spring break. And joining me now to discuss this and other changes is there, he's still kind of new, President Dr. Angel Cabrera, President of the Georgia Institute of Technology here in Atlanta, or as we plain folks say, President of Georgia Tech. President Cabrera, thank you so much for taking the time. Good to have you on the program. Thank you, Rose, for having me. A pleasure. When we played those clips from the past conversations I've had with college presidents and, and all of that, I, I imagine all of that touches for you personally as well. Absolutely. I in fact, recognize the voices of uh, my colleagues leading uh, all of our great universities in, in Atlanta. We, we talk to one another often because um, it is absolutely true that what we're dealing with is something that none of us had uh, experienced before. Um, these are circumstances that we could not and have imagined. Definitely, I did not imagine them when I started my my journey mm -hmm. uh, back at Georgia Tech in September of last year. 
uh, we had no idea what was uh, around the corner. Well, now that you do know what's been around the corner, just reflect on this time, uh, President Cabrera. What do you make of all this? You know, I, I am an optimist. And as hard as it has been and as hard as it continues to be, we also have seen the best of people, people stepping up, um, faculty who immediately pivoted their research to start finding solutions to the big problems and questions that we were facing. We had mechanical engineers designing PPE when there was none to go around. And, and we had um, biologists uh, working on new treatments. And we had our own faculty come together to create a, a pretty massive um, surveillance testing system to keep our community, uh, our community safe. Our faculty, our staff, people volunteering, people bringing the best that they had. Our faculty all massively switching their teaching to online in March of this year without without notice. I mean, I can go through the list, but but really, I I think there is something powerful about this crisis that has reminded us of uh, something fundamental about us as an institution and as as individuals as well. We're going to get into Georgia Tech's plans in a moment, but I also just want to get your thoughts on how this pandemic has exposed for some folks the inequities and the disparities, not only just in K through 12, but even at the higher education level, has exposed all of the issues with how folks are able to to get educated in this nation. Uh, you're absolutely right. And um, we, we thought... You know, in the in the first wave of the internet, we, we thought the internet was going to be this massive uh, tool to democratize access to information and to education. Uh, no more barriers; everybody would have access to the same content. And then COVID happened, and we shut down, and we moved to remote, and we sent students home to find out that your background and your income and the family you came from made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And if you were in a high income family in suburban Atlanta with your own room that you can close and your um, wide and, and powerful internet access connection, life went on smoothly. Mm -hmm. If you went to a different type of setting, maybe a rural setting or a low income family without appropriate space at home, without appropriate internet access, all of a sudden your circumstances were dramatically different. So to our surprise, um, remote access, instead of democratizing access to higher education, in some way revealed some of the underlying inequities. Layer on top of that, of course, the issues uh, that we have faced with the killings of George Floyd and, and uh, Breonna Taylor and others. And all of a sudden, we could not, not pay attention to those issues. Mm -hmm. And in our own community, they have really come to the, to the surface. We have had really open and, and even raw conversations among ourselves like I had never seen before. And I think for the better. I think we're, we're becoming far more self-aware of what's working, what's not working, and, and all the, the things that remain to be to be done. So that's, again, another, another aspect of 2020 that has been hard, but in the long run is going to have a positive impact. Well, let's stay there for a moment. Uh, what role can Georgia Tech play in all this discussion and this moment we're having about racial justice and how do we move beyond you know the protests and how do we re achieve actionable outcomes there there's a lot that we need to uh, that we need to do at Georgia Tech uh, for once really the the number of black students at Georgia Tech is still around seven uh, percent that's a lot less than the black population in our city or our state uh, or even uh, nationally. So we have to respond to that and not just for a reason of, if you will, of, of, of social equity, mm -hmm. but it's also a very practical matter. If we want to develop technologies that improve the human condition, and that is the mission of Georgia Tech, to mm -hmm. advance technology and improve the human condition, we need all voices at the table. If we don't have women at the table, if we don't have people of color studying engineering and computing, then it's going to be virtually impossible to develop technologies that, that really help all of us live, live better lives. And, and there are countless examples of, of that. We have some faculty and students, for example, looking at biases in machine learning and artificial intelligence models. 
uh, even even th things as, as simple as face recognition software, guess what? If you um, have darker skin, those models don't respond, don't recognize uh, your face as, as well as they do people with lighter skins. Mm -hmm. It might seem something not terribly important unless uh, you start talking about self-driving cars that need to distinguish whether something is, you know, is, is, a, is a light post or a human being. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so anyway, they're, they're, that's just a, an example of, of what happens with technology when you don't have all voices at the table. We need to do better as an institution. So that being said, in, in addition to Georgia Tech's strategic plan, if do you incorporate that? Do you make sure that is somehow incorporated in terms of as long as you're going to be president, that this is something that the Institute works on? Absolutely. So this year, uh, we've been working on a new strategic plan for the next decade. Um, we did not let COVID uh, pause or, I mean, or derail that process. In fact, it was, it was a, a process that kept us sane, thinking about the, about the future. And the theme that emerged as central to, uh, to the strategic plan is the theme of inclusive innovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, we and and we want to have impact. We want to champion innovation. We want to continue to contribute to Atlanta uh, to to be a, a hub, a thriving hub of entrepreneurship and innovation. But we want it to be better. We don't want Atlanta to be just the next big hub of uh, of innovation, the next Silicon Valley, or the next uh, the next big center of entrepreneurship. We want to be better. We want to be a place with people of all backgrounds. Uh, find their way uh, to 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 advance technology to do to do great things. So um, that is a big part, and we have we have goals, and we will be uh, rolling out the plan. The plan, by the way, is not just my plan. Mm -hmm. I, I brought together the entire community, and we asked ourselves, what is it that we're uh, that that we want to accomplish as a community? And out of that came goals around expanding access, and how are we going to motivate, inspire uh, kids who are right now a mile away. Uh, from our campus in Atlanta public schools to mm -hmm. choose careers in science and technology? How are we going to convince girls who right now, many of them uh, believe that maybe computer science or or aerospace engineering may not be careers for them? How do we convince them that indeed it could be a very exciting career for them? So, so we have goals in terms of access, goals in terms of completion, and also goals in terms of how do we make uh, Georgia Tech uh, as a community, as an organization, develop a culture with where everybody can thrive. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Angel Cabrera, president of the Georgia Institute of Technology here in Atlanta. Obviously, we're talking about his vision for the institution and, of course, its response to the pandemic. Well, and that leads me to this. Now let's talk about Georgia Tech and its response to COVID-19, because if the students aren't on campus, if the faculty and staff aren't on campus because of the pandemic, although you have virtual learning. Look, if there's one institution around here where we know that there's always hands-on in the labs and, and in the class, it's obviously it's Georgia Tech. Let's begin with what you all are facing now. You've said we're going to have a delayed start for the spring year. There's no spring break. What mm -hmm. metrics are you all using as you make the decision? I know that being part of the university system of Georgia, you have to follow that. But oh, so after um, March, it was clear we had to basically empty the, the, the campus and, and try to get our um, handle on, on, on COVID and, and try to understand it better. But then we spent the whole summer trying to figure out how to reopen safely. The, as you know, there are universities around the country, even in Atlanta, that have followed different paths. Some mm -hmm. uh, have remained uh, online and, and did not uh, move their students back in. We did. Uh, like all the universities in the in the university system, we decided we were going to reopen. Uh, and, and listen, if we knew this was going to last a month or two, then maybe my view that maybe shutting down is the right thing to do. Let's just all stay home. And, you know, in, in, in two months later, we come out and things are over. We have no idea if it's going to be uh, six months or a year or a year and a half of this. So our approach has been, let's do what we can to be able to reopen safely and continue to deliver on our important mission of education and, um, and research. A key part of that plan, um, which so far has been working quite effectively, um, has been in our case, a pretty massive system of surveillance testing. Uh, so every, every day uh, we, we, uh, we recommend, and most of the students do it, to test once a week and all employees, faculty, staff also, we all 
uh, test once once a week. And, and we made it very easy. So for example, we don't use uh, nasal swabs because uh, we know how unpleasant that is and people may not want to come back every week. So we we defined, we, we created our very own uh, system. Our faculty found a way uh, to safely and, and accurately extract RNA from saliva. So you basically go to a testing site once a week, you scan your phone, you you tap your, your card, uh, you spit in a cup, you fill a little testing tube. The next day you get a message that says, most of the time, it says you're fine. Uh, come back next week. And that now, now how do we not now, President Cabrera? I know that you're going to tout Georgia Tech. Now, how do we know that your own testing <laughs> procedure is more accurate than the what most folks are doing? We are we are um, totally transparent with what we're doing. By, by the way, so our, our testing system is uh, is CLIA certified. So we've gone through all the uh, the certifications. We post data on our website daily. In some people, in fact, I get questions from other uh, institutions is why, why do you put this? Like, I want our community to have all the information. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen, by the way, Rose, is that our cases, as soon as students moved in, cases started growing. Mm-hmm. By the way, the data, because we have so much data, we know what fraternity house has an outbreak. We know that on the third floor of a dorm, we have an outbreak. So we can go isolate the cases, and that way we can make smart decisions. Have y'all because had to do that? that now, are you have y'all had to do Pardon that? Me? Have y'all had to oh, isolate absolutely. a floor? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We we have uh, we have a whole facility uh, reserved for people who need to be isolated or quarantined. And and at the peak, that facility was very full because when students first got uh, came back on campus, we had lots of cases. We we had uh, I think at the peak when you do the seven day average, we had about 50, 58 cases on average. Right now, we're getting one or two cases daily. So we're now at the same level we were before students moved in. That's why we, we feel very good about how things are going, although we're not claiming victory yet because mm-hmm. we're, we're halfway through the semester. But so far, things are going very, very well. Is there a threshold that you're using in terms of the population? What numbers are you were hoping to avoid that would maybe cause you all to say, hey, you know what, we have to shift to online only for a moment here. So we, we keep all sorts of numbers. We look, for example, at the uh, the rate of positive cases in our surveillance testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the peak, it was at 4%. Now it's like less than 0.5%, which is, again, the level when students moved in. So that's that's one of the key numbers. We look at how full the isolation and quarantining facility is. We look at trends, whether cases are growing or shrinking. Um, we are in constant conversation with Fulton Public Health, with City of Atlanta, uh, with uh, the Georgia Department of Public Health. So we're in constant communications with, with everybody. But right now, again, our numbers are really virtually, uh, they're, they're, they're lower than they were when students moved in. So we're so far away from, from having any sort of concern about having to shut down. In fact, what we're trying to do right now is to making sure that even some of the hybrid classes, mm-hmm. uh, if, if anything, we, we have an issue because some of the hybrid classes that have some elements online and some elements in the classroom right now, students are saying, wait a second, we're not getting enough face-to-face time. So we're trying to figure out how to get back into more uh, physical face-to-face interaction now that we know that infections are really under control. Now, as part one of our conversation with Dr. Angel Cabrera, president of Georgia Tech, right here in Atlanta. So join us on tomorrow's Closer Look for part two. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There's no official assessment, but there have been studies to suggest physical activity has been declining worldwide during this COVID-19 pandemic. As people stayed indoors more and more, getting those usual steps in, well, it's become a challenge. Look, we're working from home, sitting through these endless Zoom, Google meetups and Microsoft Teams meetings. And it's not surprising, maybe a few of us have picked up some pounds and quite frankly, become sedentary. Now, this coming Saturday, virtually tens of thousands of kids and families across the country will participate in the first national sport for good day. It's put on by Loris USA. The reason is pretty simple. Everyone is invited to get out and play for at least 60 minutes of safe, socially distant physical activity. And my next guest is going to talk about the event and also talk about how the pandemic is affecting youth sports. 
And by the way, my next guest is someone who knows quite a bit about being active. Take a listen. Edwin Moses in the 1976 Montreal Olympics taking home the gold and setting a world record. By the way, that was just one of many victories and medals for this Morehouse College alum. And he's also the Loris Academy member and chairman. And he joins me now. Welcome to the program, Edwin Moses. Dr. Edwin Moses, I should say. Glad to be here with you, Rose. Let's begin here. How have you been staying active during this pandemic? What have you been doing? I get out and do exercise <clears throat> socially distance. I try to exercise where there's uh, no one exercise. I haven't had the nerve to get into a gym yet. So I go out and do stretching and calisthenics and do a lot of push-ups and sit-ups and uh, keep my back stretched out. So uh, I, I, I keep it very, very tight, but I do think it's very important uh, to do exercise. And that's why we're having the uh, mm-hmm. Sporting day for 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 lawyers um, on October third to get the young people out and keep them active and help them help them to uh, work their way through some of the stress and mental anguish that they're going through by being delayed mm-hmm. in school and not being able to be around their friends. I know it works on us as adults, uh, having to do uh, Zoom calls and do everything uh, electronically. But the kids, we have to uh, look and make sure that uh, they have opportunities to, <clears throat> excuse me, do as much as they can, but most most uh, definitely stay as active as they can and stay open to physical activity, especially the kids that we deal with in the uh, mm-hmm. inner city communities. Uh, physical fitness and, and wellness is uh, very important and very critical and crucial, you know, in the African and Latino uh, communities that we deal with. So we try to make sure that they stay involved and that the parents understand that it's uh, not only to their kids' best interest, but in their best mm-hmm. interest to begin to think and have to plan for their kids to, to do such activities. So I imagine when you hear, because of the pandemic and some of the stay in sheltered orders, that physical activity was declining, and especially for kids, and particularly kids in the inner cities where they may not have access to a recreational center or even a playground. And when you hear about this inactivity, I imagine that does, is concerning for you. Yeah, it's very important for kids to, to get physical activity. As I mentioned before, it's gonna contribute greatly to their mental stability and mental health, which is uh, a really big issue for adults and kids today. So due to all the safeguarding uh, activities that we have to perform to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that no one is put in an unsafe condition, unsafe circumstance that's been the driving force and that's why we're having uh, uh the sport mm-hmm. for good day on october the third you know something else that you all did uh, sport for good atlanta which is an initiative of laureus usa something you all did for families uh, in atlanta's west side neighborhoods you all gave like 300 summer sport kits you gave out you gave those to families we're doing everything we can we we want to get the we want to get the parents involved as well uh, we having a sport for good day. They've been very, very successful. We had a, a great one uh, 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 a couple of years ago at the Atlanta at the uh, Falcon Stadium. Uh, uh, we had uh, an event last year where we had the police uh, all stars versus the uh, Washington High School area uh, teenagers that play baseball. So mm-hmm. we do everything we can to get them out and keep them active. Uh, but I think uh, if if we can. Uh, somehow convince some of the parents that don't get a chance to move around uh, as a consequence of getting their kids out there, then that's all the better. You and I both know how participating in sports for so many youth can be a springboard to so many other areas. And given that this, what we're dealing with with this pandemic, what concerns do you have about the summer youth programs moving forward? Because if we can't get this pandemic to a situation where it can be controlled in terms of mitigating the spread of the virus, even as we move into next year, you know, look, there was no summer camp this year for kids, sports camps or a regular camp. This is changing the way that our youth, the activities that we can have for them in the summer, which is so important. 
It absolutely does. And we're, we're hoping that uh, things do get better and people begin to understand how we're going to have to uh, get control of the situation. But it's of a major consequence to us. We, we already know that youth physical activity has been on the decline, that the uh, high schools and elementary schools, uh, they don't have a uh, gym class like I used to have to have it in the, in the third, fourth and fifth grade, twice a week, indoors, mm -hmm. wear white shorts, white socks, gym shoes, <laughs> you know, do everything from tumbling to volleyball to basketball yep. to dodgeball, uh, get, have, have uh, calisthenics where everyone's measured and we do these calisthenic tests and physical fitness tests and uh, our, uh, field days and running around the field on the time course and so forth that doesn't exist anymore and that's been on the decline for for many many years and so we're going to have to have a, a solution and uh, essentially it comes down to to uh, organizations like Laureus to be on the front line and be out there with the kids and induce them to come out through uh, sporting activities. And all over the world, we do this. We have about 120 different uh, projects in about 60 different countries worldwide. That was my next yeah. question. I didn't think yeah, a lot of we, people knew about the Laureus Academy and what you all are doing. Yeah, we have uh, nine international foundations. I'm the chairman of the all the global foundations and the one here in the United States. And so uh, I've been to, to uh, we've been to, to China, uh, Malaysia, I've been to Argentina, uh, uh, Brazil on several occasions, South Africa, East Germany, India, uh, all over Western Europe, all over Africa. And we do the same things. We find ways to engage kids. And we're not engaging them to become sports uh, tennis pros or, mm -hmm. or soccer players or anything like that. We're trying to get them to, to uh, we're trying to, to build better personalities and build the kind of attributes that we want our kids to have. Uh, and at the same time, we, we, we keep them away from uh, the types of scenarios that are uh, very adverse and, and localized and, and situations that they live in, like HIV in South Africa. We've dealt with gangs, uh, kids that are involved in gangs in Brazil and, and uh, immigration problems in Italy and even in Germany and, and uh, kids that are, uh, have uh, been on boats coming from the north of Africa, refugees. Uh, we've dealt with boy soldiers in, in Ivory Coast. But here in Atlanta, we deal with the inner city kids here in New Orleans. Those are our, our two uh, great events in, in New York City and Chicago. So we try to get the kids and keep them active. And uh, we're trying to bring back a scenario where it's safe again for a kid to go to the park and play because we have people out there that are looking out for them, uh, offering most importantly, a protected space uh, from a health perspective and just a physical perspective because mm -hmm. some of the areas we go in are kind of dicey in terms of gang, gang, local gangs being around, but we found ways to cut through uh, the, 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 those types of scenarios and, and, and have spaces designated as safe spaces for kids to come play, no matter where they come from, no matter what neighborhood. And you all have some amazing who's who in terms of legends and, and great athletes like yourself. I mean, Martina Navratilova is there. You have Tony Hawk up in there, Monica Sellis. You know, um, I imagine that helps having a very international approach to using sports, not just, as you said, in terms of possibly influencing a kid to participate in sports, but beyond that, all those qualities of life and we, those tentacles tied to quality of life issues that we talk about so much on this program. Yeah, we have 70 academy members. We're called the World Sports Academy. We have 70, 70 total icons from sport. We've got uh, Michael Johnson, for example, mm -hmm. and Boris Becker. We have a, a uh, hundreds of ambassadors, including people of the likes of Lewis Hamilton and Simone Biles has participated before, mm -hmm. uh, Allison Felix in track and field. We've had Chris Paul as one of our ambassadors out in, in uh, Los, An Los Angeles, uh, just a, a, a vast amount of people. We've had um, um, uh, uh, Kevin Garnett that donated like a million dollars to help fund Laureus projects. So we have a lot of assistance, a lot of help. And uh, more importantly, we have the, 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 the academy members that are willing to go out and get in the dirt and play with the kids and use themselves as examples. Because 
at the end of the day, we all have a story about how we got involved in sports. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as we uh, spoke about briefly, my story is that I was 5'7 and 117 pounds my junior year in high school. I never knew I was the smallest kid on the football team until I looked at the picture and saw the original roster. But uh, I was like uh, Steve Urkel when I was in high school, and I was a nerd and studied oh. and uh, went to college to Morehouse, no track, no scholarship, and four years later, I was Olympic champion. So we all have a story about the power of sports and what it can do uh, for us. And uh, as academy members, we use those skills and what we've learned to help other kids all over the world. We're, we've uh, dealt with about 5 million kids going back to uh, the year 2000 when mm. the organization was started. Let's talk about this Saturday as we wrap up. Now, you want folks like me and everyone else to get out and get physical for at least 60 minutes an hour, right? That's all you're asking, Edwin. You just, just 60 minutes of doing something. That's what you want, right? Yep, the live event is going to start uh, on October the 3rd at 12 noon. Uh, and we want people to, to get out and exercise for 60 minutes. You know, take your kids to the park, do some exercise, let your kids show you how to exercise. Uh, but we want to encourage uh, families and, and uh, the, the young people all around, uh, all around the city to get out. We've got uh, Malcolm Mitchell, uh, who's one of our professional athletes. We've got uh, 15 pro sports teams, including the Braves, the Falcons, Atlanta United, and the Hawks that are going to participate. Uh, I heard that there's going to be some signed jerseys to be given out to the kids. The kids always like the, the swag bags that yeah. we give out. So we make them feel great. And, and, and uh, we try to in induce them to believe that uh, uh, they can be better than they are. We want to uh, connect them with people who can help them with uh, education and, and inspire them. Uh, and uh, hopefully we, we, we will we will be able to connect with them and, and give them incentive to an incentive to have a better life than perhaps they can be. So we're like their parents when we're out there and they mm -hmm. always have fun. And as I mentioned before, we're not there to, to induce them to become professional athletes. We're there to induce them to become better people. Well, I will certainly log on as well. And, and also just real quickly, I want to get your thoughts on, look, this is the first time in, I, I think maybe since there was a world war that there was no Olympics um, this year. I think the Olympics have only been canceled maybe Twice, three times, I think, during World War One and twice uh, in World War Two. Um, what do you just make of that and what this pandemic has, has done in terms of just the activities we love to watch, which, of course, is, is sports? I mean, no Olympics that was supposed to take place in Tokyo. Yeah, and, and that was the best decision that was made. While they were deliberating whether or not the Olympics were going to happen uh, uh, last, uh, last uh, th well, this summer, uh, I believe that it wouldn't happen. I believe that it's going to be a tough call to even make next year because uh, I just think it's going to be very difficult to have 10,000 athletes and 28,000 journalists and all the team attaches and coaches and trainers and uh, to accommodate all those people to have a great Olympic experience for the athletes. Um, all with, uh, with the COVID virus uh, possibly coming in from all over the world, mm. so it's going to be a it's going to be a very different type of Olympics if they are able to have it. It's not going to be the Olympics as we know it. Well, and if they're talking about having an Olympics without spectators, I mean, you know, the energy from the crowd is so important. Can you imagine running the 400 meter hurdles without a crowd? Yeah. No, I can't. And that's how track and field has been conducted all season long with, you know, two or 3,000 people in a 50,000 seat stadium. Uh, it's almost like a practice meet. I would hate personally to compete in an Olympics like that. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they really don't have a choice. And the options are to postpone the Olympics in 2021 if they can't come up with a solution. But you have the logistics of Tokyo, which is a huge city. Uh, uh, I don't know what the status is of the virus there, but and I'm not sure whether or not they want to uh, have you know two or three hundred thousand mm -hmm. people uh, come into the country. Uh, believe that they sold four million tickets. I just don't see how it can work. I, I, it's watching the NBA virtually is a, a lot different than, than participating in the Olympics with everything's at stake. Uh, if I was an athlete, I wouldn't be happy right now. Mm. And again, um, this Saturday, October third, encouraging folks to get out households not just kids but everyone get out if you can and practicing a safe distance obviously 
And for more information, they can head to the Loris Academy website. We'll have a link on our page that as well. Always great to talk to you, track and field legend. Great memories on the track, I'll say. One of the greats, Edwin Moses, is the Loris Academy member and chairman. As always, I enjoy talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Can you still go over the hurdles? Can you still get out there? You can. I can still. I can still hurdle. I know you can. Now, you know what? And if I and it, yeah. let me say something. I I apologize. That probably that question was insulting. I shouldn't have asked that. I apologize. Because I yeah, know you can yeah. still get over the hurdles. Yeah. If, yeah. Running hurdles is like like being able to walk. You you know if you can if you can still walk and you're still physically able, you can get those legs over the hurdle. And uh, the the question is, uh, what's the landing gonna be like? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question I should have. Take off is always easy. <laughs> I can take off, but I can still land. <laughs> uh, that is great, Dr. Edwin Moses. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you for what you all are doing for the kids, and especially the households and kids on the Atlanta's West Side. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rose. Thank you. Right, take care. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.